my loyal subjects, uh, I mean listeners, my name is Matt, but for today, call me Augustus Mattis Geeks Crossicus. Actually, don't do that, because that would be pretty stupid. As you may or may not have noticed by now, I'm kind of a history lover. Most people know that about me, and sometimes they'll ask me about my favorite area of history, and that is a very difficult question for me to answer. Since history is so long and contains so many different countries, nations, groups, and governments with their own unique histories in and of themselves, but by and large, I usually answer American history. I'm American. American history is what got me into history in the first place, and I've read books, listened to podcasts, and even done lessons in schools on just about every part of American history. Astute Geeks Crossing observers will note that of the episodes I've done talking about history, thus far they've all been about American history. An influential Democratic politician operating out of New York in the early 1900s, some of the various important founding fathers who drafted our ideas of governance and independence in the later 1700s, and the wonderful story of Walt Disney, Disney World, and the Disney Corporation, a company that was largely understood to be as American as apple pie for most of its existence, modern business practice notwithstanding. <laughs> but that aside, the main reason I never strayed from American history on this podcast is simply because that was most of what I loved. But in late 2021, I thought to myself, quite randomly, you know what I don't know much about, but would be kind of cool to learn about? Roman history. The Romans, after all, inspired not only American history, we owe our entire form of government to the Roman Republic, but nearly all of Western history as a whole. So perhaps unsurprisingly, I fell in love with Roman history after discovering Mike Duncan's famous History of Rome podcast late last year. Though there are many elements of Roman history that are fascinating, the governmental apparatus of the High Republic period, the military strategies, the campaigns they pursued, and their incredibly interesting transition from the biggest pagan power in the world to the largest Christian power in the world, today I want to talk about the guys at the top. After all, one of my favorite aspects of American history is studying the similarities, differences, strengths, and weaknesses of our long list of presidents. In fact, since I love American history so much, I've always wanted to do a tier list for this podcast ranking the American presidents, or at least do a countdown of the 10 best and 10 worst presidents we've ever had. But for obvious reasons, I've shelved that idea. We don't like to do the whole politics thing here on Geeks Crossing, and even if I disqualified the last four or five presidents from any ranking, I think my personal political philosophies would shine through my choices. I just have a general feeling that ranking American presidents would be quite political, understandably, because they're politicians. But you know where I don't have that problem? Talking about Roman emperors. All the possible Western Roman emperors one could rank reigned between 2,000 and 1,500 years ago. I think it's fair to say that any political tension from the time has died down. So that's what we're going to do today. Instead of ranking American presidents and getting a bunch of politically minded Americans up in arms, instead we're going back, starting even before the birth of Christ, and counting down the best Roman emperors. For those of you who know little about Roman history, first off, sorry you have to sit through this, although I'm not really sure why you would, just in case you're using this as an opportunity to find interesting historical figures to learn about, let me give you a very, very brief overview of the Republic slash Empire we're talking about. So, Rome is founded on the Italian peninsula. There's some kings for a while, the people revolt and decide to have a republic, so they install a senate, and the people vote on two men to serve as consuls, basically kind of like electing co-presidents every single year who would work with the senate. A couple hundred years of this system goes by, with the Romans expanding their territory more and more as time goes on. Some people start saying the senate's too out of touch, some populists try to either give the people more help from their government, or cynically seize power for themselves, depending on how you feel about them. 
These men include the Gracchi brothers, Marius, Sulla, and eventually Julius Caesar, who basically pronounces himself emperor. The horrified Senate murders him, but it's too late, especially after a series of bloody civil wars, which sees Caesar's adopted son Augustus standing triumphant. The Senate and the consuls still exist, but their power is pretty much in name alone, as the Roman Republic turns into the Roman Empire. Emperors typically rule for life, each with their own quirks and dreams. Until finally, due to a variety of political, social, and cultural and economic reasons, the Western Roman Empire, the part that actually has Rome in it, falls. And though the Eastern Roman Empire actually continues on for another thousand years, even managing to win back Rome for a few years, we largely consider this a different political beast that we know as the Orthodox, Greek-speaking Byzantine Empire. And roll credits. In the approximately 500 years of Roman emperors, the Romans had quite a few duds, to be sure, but there were also some real diamonds in the rough. So instead of ranking all the Roman emperors on a tier list, my original plan, which probably would have taken hours, let's instead go through the 10 best emperors today, and what made them so great, and save the real stinkers for another conversation. And to you Roman history buffs out there, I'm sorry to say that we will not be considering Eastern Roman emperors on this list. Any emperor who rules over what we now know as the Byzantines, but which were obviously good old Romans, won't be up for consideration because that would be another thousand years of research I'd need to do. And plus, I generally think that with some exceptions, Justinian probably one of them, the emperors are a lot tamer than the juggernauts of the early imperial period. Maybe someday down the line I'll do a top 10 best Byzantine emperors list, but again, that's a lot more research to do. <laughs> you got all that? Alright, let's go through the best emperors of one of the earliest, most stable, and most powerful empires to ever exist in Europe, maybe even the whole world. And as usual, we'll start with some honorable mentions. Tiberius was the emperor of Rome from 14 AD to 37 AD as its second ever emperor. He was a decent ruler for a few years until his beloved son Drusus and nephew Germanicus died a few years apart from one another, after which Tiberius became an unruly and paranoid man. He deserves credit for accumulating tons and tons of wealth for the Roman government through smart spending, which for him was barely any spending at all, but he also started the horrible tradition of purges, where the emperors of Rome would just have anyone they didn't like or didn't trust killed, sometimes along with their families and friends. Plus, Tiberius had a horrible, disturbing sex life, and I'm just going to leave it at that. Constantius I, also known as Constantius Chlorus, was one of the four emperors of Rome from 293 AD to 306 AD. Yeah, things get a little complicated with the numbers of emperors of Rome sometimes, which we'll get to when we get to the emperors who reformed things. Constantius I was an able and kind ruler and a competent general. Right after the crisis of the 3rd century saw the Roman Empire embroiled in civil wars, breakaway states, and all-around unrest, so Constantius was a welcome change. That said, he really doesn't stand out compared to other rulers. Plus, his death thrust the Roman Empire into another period of civil wars, which is never ideal. Towards the end of the 2nd century would come one of the last true dynasties, or at least the last one before the crisis of the 3rd century. And that dynasty is the Severan dynasty. Septimius Severus ruled from 193 to 211 AD. He was a decent ruler who inspired confidence and stability after the walking disaster known as Commodus and the unrest following his assassination in the year of the five emperors. For that alone, he deserves a spot on this honorable mentions list, but he doesn't make it to the list proper due to his terrible decisions regarding debasing the Roman economy and buttering up the Roman army. Two decisions that would have massive consequences going forward. The rest of the Severan dynasty was absolutely horrible. Septimius's sons, Caracalla and Geta, and Septimius's grandnephew, Elagabalus, went down as easily three of the worst men to ever lead the empire. But the dynasty was bookended by Elagabalus's cousin, Severus Alexander, who I think was pretty decent. Alexander ruled from 222 to 235 AD. He infamously took his mother's advice on everything, but he tried his very best. 
and could point to some successes in the East and the attempted reversal of his ancestor's bad economic policy. Too bad he and his mother were assassinated by his soldiers, plunging the Empire into a leadership crisis. That's going to be a pattern, by the way. <laughs> uh, let's see. Theodosius I was a pretty strong emperor, ruled from 379 AD to 395 AD, and a very important guy in terms of the rise of Christianity. Some people consider him the last true Roman emperor before the East became the separate Byzantine Empire. But again, for our sake, the Roman Empire was officially split when the West was lost in 476 AD. I recognize that this is kind of a cop-out, since much of the West was reclaimed by Byzantine Emperor Justinian in the 500s AD, but 476 was where my research ended, so that's where I got right now. I never know what to say about Domitian, who ruled from 81 AD to 96 AD. After the fall of the Judeo-Claudian dynasty, which technically led from Julius Caesar and his adopted son Augustus to the madmen Nero almost 100 years later, there was a period of instability in which various Romans tried to declare themselves emperor. The period was ended by Vespasian, and when he died, he heired the Roman Empire to his eldest son Titus, and when Titus died, the crown went to Vespasian's younger son, Domitian. He was a capable ruler by all accounts, but he was also somewhat bloodthirsty, holding numerous purges of the Roman aristocracy, so definitely worth keeping that in mind. Philip I, commonly referred to as Philip the Arab, reigned from 244 AD to 249 AD and provided a window of stability in the middle of the crisis of the 3rd century. As you may have guessed, he was the first Roman emperor of Arabian descent, but he also oversaw various festivals, including Rome's 1,000th birthday. He also paved the way for tolerance of Christianity, easily one of the most important developments in Western civilization and possibly even world history. So you gotta give him props for that, even if Philip didn't do anything too remarkable other than reign for five years during a 70-year stretch in which emperors got assassinated every five minutes. And that leads me to the last of the honorable mentions. The emperors that probably would have been excellent if they lived long enough. In their short reigns, they showed promise, dedication, integrity, and true skill, but fate had other plans for these four great men. The first was Titus, who I mentioned earlier as the son of Vespasian and the elder brother of Domitian. He reigned from 79 AD to 81 AD and was, by most accounts, a kind, generous, benevolent ruler. He completed the construction of the Colosseum and oversaw the relief efforts for the people living in and around Pompeii when Mount Vesuvius erupted, as well as the people of Rome when a horrible fire broke out. His generosity was so unmatched that, supposedly, he once spent a day without helping someone and remarked, Friends, I have wasted a day. It's too bad he died of a sudden infection, suspected by some historians to have been poisoned by his brother Domitian. Next chronologically was Pertinax, who ruled for three months in 193 AD. He was insinuated in the plot to assassinate Commodus, since the conspirators went to him to see if he would serve as emperor after they did the deed, to avoid a power vacuum. Pertinax agreed, and after the assassination of Commodus, Pertinax was declared emperor. I'm generally not a huge fan of assassinating heads of state, but... Commodus was a special case. He was a violent, paranoid, delusional control freak who was driving the empire into the ground and who executed thousands upon thousands of Roman citizens at a time just because they knew a guy who knew a guy who once said he didn't like Commodus. Pertinax's story is inspiring since he was actually the son of a freed slave and thus a real rags-to-riches story as well as a highly skilled military commander. Unfortunately, he came to power during a time where the Praetorian Guard, the Emperor's personal bodyguards, were growing incredibly corrupt. And when Pertinax told them that he'd be taking a hard line against the bribery and constantly inflating paychecks they were used to, the Praetorian Guard surrounded Pertinax and killed him on the spot. A truly dark blemish on the history of Roman corruption. For those curious, the Praetorian Guard had no candidate to take power after this assassination, and thus no way to prevent a power vacuum. So they sold the office of the emperor to the highest bidder. I'm serious. 
The next emperor on this short list is Probus, who served from 276 AD to 282 AD. That's a decent little chunk of time. Sadly, records have been lost detailing exactly what went on during Probus's reign. We know he was a trusted disciple of Aurelian, one of Rome's all-time greatest emperors who brought a crumbling empire back together. And Probus continued many of Aurelian's policies, including that of mercy to enemies, imperial unity, and strength against barbarian invaders. Of course, this was too much to ask of the Roman army, who killed Probus in a mutiny despite his widespread popularity. I guess sometimes the good do die young. And my final candidate for an emperor who could have been truly great had he reigned longer, and my final honorable mention overall, is Majorian, who reigned in the western half of the empire as co-emperor from 457 AD to 461 AD. During this time, the Western Roman Empire was limited to basically only Italy, since barbarians had seized and settled almost all other Roman territory. Majorian led a bold campaign to reclaim Gaul, modern-day France, Spain, and North Africa. And though he faced some defeats, he did exceptionally well, winning back huge portions of Gaul and Spain. And had he time to regroup and reorganize, he could have very well won back the rest of it, earning himself a spot in history as the second coming of Aurelian. Unfortunately, he was stabbed in the back by Ricimer, a German general who'd worked well with Majorian, but who eventually decided he'd rather have a puppet than a partner. The Western Empire fell to barbarians less than 20 years later. Okay, all those honorable mentions aside, let's move on to the actual top 10 list. These are the best emperors the Roman Empire had to offer in the 500 years from 27 BC to 476 AD. And to start off, I already have a tie. I know, I really don't like to do ties, and actually, I don't think I've done a tie on any countdown list since my very first one back in July 2020, but here we are, and at number 10, I have Antoninus Pius and Gallienus, two different men who lived and reigned during very different times. Antoninus Pius and Gallienus should still be celebrated as some of the best rulers of Rome. We might as well go chronologically. Antoninus Pius reigned from 138 AD to 161 AD. He had fallen in good favor with the Emperor Hadrian, who adopted him and named him as heir under the condition that he adopted his nephews, the young Marcus Aurelius and Lucius Verus, and named them as his own heirs, which Antoninus dutifully did. Hadrian died, and Antoninus inherited a stable, safe Roman Empire. See, Antoninus Pius was what we call uh, one of the five good emperors, a term coined by Machiavelli to refer to the emperors from Nerva to Marcus Aurelius, who presided over a piece of... Well, a piece of time where everything was stable and safe. This period of time lasted from 96 AD to 180 AD, almost a century of greatness for the Roman Empire and security for the average Roman. In case you couldn't guess, Antoninus Pius is not going to be the last of the five good emperors to appear on this list. But moving on, Antoninus Pius never oversaw a Roman army during his tenure as emperor. He never needed to. The Roman Empire had expanded to a comfortable size, and Antoninus's job was to simply maintain the territories that had been won by emperors past. The only major offensive he made was a push into Scotland, which led to the construction of the Antonine Wall, but that was it. Instead, the legacy of Antoninus Pius is a large and comfortable treasury, expanded access to clean drinking water, mercy towards the senators distrusted by Hadrian, hence the pious suffix added to his name, and the citizenship of freed slaves. He also died peacefully of old age, which is always nice for an emperor. Gallienus reigned alongside his father Valerian from 253 AD to 260 AD, after which he reigned alone until 268 AD, following Valerian's capture and slaughter at the hands of the Persians. And if you couldn't tell from that colorful fact, Gallienus was not nearly as fortunate as Antoninus Pius to be born in an empire that only knew prosperity. Nope, Gallienus ruled in the thick of things, and arguably the most chaotic and unstable part of the crisis of the 3rd century. 
tensions were so high and the enemies were so varied that the Roman Empire actually split into three different sub-empires after the capture of Valerian by the Persians. With the Persians on the east, groups of barbarians in the north, and civil unrest within the empire, Gallienus watched his empire come apart at the seams as the western and northern territories united under the general Postumus, and the eastern provinces came under the control of the Palmarians, particularly King Odonatus and Queen Zenobia. Even though Gallienus didn't reunite the Roman Empire, and wouldn't even live to see it united again, sadly, he deserves more honor than he's usually given, in my opinion, for somehow managing to keep a shattered Rome intact, and keep hordes of barbarians and countless other conspiracies and breakaway attempts at bay. The shattering of the Empire did happen under his watch, but if it wasn't for his tirelessly trying to search for a way to reunite the Empire, Roman history could have very well ended in 260 AD with a three-way split of what had once been such a powerful force. Of course, this thankless work got him assassinated, because this is the crisis of the 3rd century we're talking about. The reason I've put Antoninus Pius and Gallienus both tied and so low is that they really didn't do anything in the broad sense. Both men didn't introduce any detrimental reforms or greatly expand territory. Antoninus Pius inherited a great situation and kept it great, while Gallienus inherited a horrible situation and kept it from getting any worse. In a gigantic, multi-ethnic empire, surrounded by angry neighbors and often facing dissent from within, simple maintenance should be seen as a success story in and of itself. So Antoninus Pius and Gallienus deserve props, even if it's under two separate sets of circumstances. And I do promise that's my only tie on this list. The ninth best Roman emperor is Claudius, who ruled from 41 AD to 54 AD. While following the thread of Roman imperial history, Claudius was one of my favorite characters with a weird and really interesting backstory. So Claudius was born in 10 BC to Drusus, the brother of future Emperor Tiberius and the stepson of Emperor Augustus. As a child, he developed a limp, a stutter, and partial deafness, probably due to a disease that scholars have cited as either polio, cerebral palsy, or possibly even Tourette's. After his father fell off his horse and died, Claudius was strung along from family member to family member, including his mother Antonia and his grandmother Livia, who treated him as a deformed monster who would never amount to anything due to his overwhelming stupidity. Nevertheless, he was actually an eager student and gifted scholar, arguably too gifted, as he worked on an account of the Roman Civil War that was seen as too critical of his great-uncle and stepfather Augustus. Yeah, great-uncle and stepfather. The Julio-Claudites were weird. It was these mistakes that encouraged the Julio-Claudite family that Claudius would never amount to anything. Fascinatingly, though, it was this image as a bumbling, lying idiot that probably saved Claudius' life. During the purges of Tiberius, and especially Caligula, during which the emperors killed anyone who could have been a threat, they never bothered with Claudius, despite his status as Tiberius' nephew and Caligula's uncle, because, come on, Claudius? He's a moron, there's no way he's plotting against me. Claudius wasn't plotting against anybody, but when Caligula was assassinated for being, uh, for being Caligula, a rotten, self-absorbed, murderous tyrant, Claudius was the only remaining male family member of age. In some tellings of the story, the Praetorian Guard found Claudius in the Emperor's palace, hiding behind some curtains, scared out of his wits that whoever killed his nephew Caligula was going to come for him too. But Claudius was the best bet for the Julio-Claudians, and he was made Emperor, to the cries of shock and horror of so many Romans who'd grown up with the stories of Claudius the village idiot. Except Claudius actually managed to blow everyone away and be one of the most quality Julio-Claudians to ever serve as Emperor. That's not necessarily a high bar to clear, since there were only five of them, and two of them were Caligula and Nero. But still, 
Claudius deserves the credit, considering how much of a joke he was considered. Claudius himself stated that he exaggerated many of his features, the stutter, the limp, the runny nose, to save himself from purges. And if that's true, talk about fourth dimensional chess. After the mess he inherited from Caligula, he managed to refill some of the treasury that Augustus and Tiberius had spent their careers building up, and oversaw many public work projects like aqueducts and bridges. Claudius seemed to care about the plight of the average Roman, sometimes eating lunch with members of the lower class and allowing freed slaves to serve in the imperial bureaucracy. And he did what his great-grandfather Julius Caesar could not do when he launched a successful campaign to annex the island of Britain into the Roman Empire one of the empire's proudest territorial holdings, as they had now conquered even the English Channel. Unfortunately, he did participate in many purges, but they were mostly of the senatorial class, arguably necessary in many cases, as many senators frequently sought to take Claudius out of the picture and establish power for themselves, since they viewed him as weak and easy to take advantage of. He was also apparently very quick to anger, a trait he himself admitted. You gotta admire his humility and honesty, but it wasn't a great trait for an emperor, especially considering the fact that the more stressed he got, the more his physical ailments flared up. Even with his faults, Claudius was one of the greatest emperors the Romans ever had. A bold commander, an intellectual writer and historian, and a man who overcame his disabilities and his status as something of a royal punchline to become a truly great leader. Unfortunately, Claudius' story does not have a happy ending as he died suddenly at 63 years of age. Some say it was simply old age or his lifelong illnesses, but the more common argument is that his fourth wife, Agrippina, had her husband poisoned. Agrippina and Claudius had been fighting frequently leading up to his death, and Agrippina wanted her son Nero to become the heir before Britannicus, the charismatic son of Claudius from his third marriage, was old enough to become a viable candidate. And for good measure, one of the first things Nero did as emperor was have the young Britannicus poisoned. Gotta love Roman politics. Moving forward, we reach a very challenging part of this list. Antoninus Pius and Gallienus, as well as Claudius, are fairly easy for me to rank, since, at least for me, they're clearly the cream of the crop compared to all of Rome's emperors, but they're not quite the upper crust that the top three emperors on this list will be. But I agonized over the order of numbers four to eight. These five emperors played a game of musical chairs while I organized this list, and I think they're all pretty close in that they have high highs and low lows. But with that little warning out of the way, the number 8 spot goes to Vespasian, who reigned from 69 AD, nice, to 79 AD. Vespasian sent an army into Rome to quell the frightening instability that had taken hold following the suicide of Emperor Nero, in which three other men declared themselves emperor and marched armies against one another. Vespasian put a stop to this by defeating Vitellus and establishing the Flavian dynasty, consisting of himself and his two children, Titus and Domitian, who we already discussed. By all accounts, Vespasian was a kind and lenient emperor. For example, even though he hated philosophers due to their romanticized view of democracy in the Old Republic, he found it hard to kill them for stating their beliefs. <laughs> he banished one philosopher, Demetrius, to an island for harshly criticizing him, and when he heard Demetrius was continuing to criticize him, he sent the philosopher a message. You're doing everything to force me to kill you, but I do not slay a barking dog. Another philosopher was put to death after insulting Vespasian multiple times in front of him after Vespasian tried again and again to pretend he didn't hear it. Showing some small amount of leniency towards critics is a trait exclusive to only a small pocket of Roman emperors, a club to which Vespasian belongs. He also loved writers and teachers, and it was under his reign that the naturalist Pliny the Elder wrote Natural History, one of the first encyclopedia series at a baffling 37 volumes and one that set the stage for most future scholarly works. Vespasian was a jolly, affable man, and got Rome back on track after its civil wars. 
But the reason why Vespasian is so low is because most of his reign has actually been lost to history. Between 71 AD and 79 AD, we really don't know what Vespasian was up to or what his government did other than perhaps make some buildings. He led the first Roman-Jewish war, which was decent for the Romans, but led to the destruction of the second Jewish temple and the sacking of Jerusalem. So, in the broader narrative of Western history, it wasn't quite that noble an achievement. In a scheme Eugene Krabs may have come up with, he instituted a tax on urine from public restrooms. Technically, Nero had instituted the tax, but it was abandoned and revived by Vespasian. And also, technically, there was a reason, as urine was used for a variety of purposes, including tanning, wool production, and laundry. Yeah, laundry detergent is something we take for granted today. (laughs) A famous historical account goes that Titus complained to his father about this unnatural tax, to which Vespasian replied, money does not stink. I'd also say that it's not like he charged people to pee in public toilets. He only charged a tax on the merchants and artisans who'd be using the urine for their work. Still doesn't make a whole lot of sense when any of those merchants and artisans had the full ability to use their own pee. Serious conversations about PP taxes aside, Vespasian was a good emperor in spite of the destruction he wrought upon Jerusalem and the questionable taxes and the fact that he didn't really do anything too crazy. He was kind and generous to most Roman citizens and perhaps more importantly, he succeeded in healing, rebuilding, and reunifying the Roman Empire after its first bloody leadership crisis following the collapse of the Julio-Claudians. And that is quite commendable. Plus, plus Vespasian was another emperor who died of natural causes. In fact, he probably has the best death of any Roman emperor. On his deathbed, he cried out, I think I am becoming a god, before eliciting a fresh bout of diarrhea and telling his sons that an emperor ought to die standing. Helped out of his bed, he died in their arms. It's a nice mix of funny and an honor, if you ask me. Number seven goes to Diocletian, who reigned from 284 AD to 305 AD. And I know this is going to be a super controversial choice for Roman history buffs because Diocletian is usually considered one of the all-time best. And if he's on this list, I do consider him one of the all-time best, but only the seventh so, not even top five material. I have my reasons for this, but first I'd like to talk about Diocletian's prose. First off, he put an official end to the crisis of the third century. I don't think it's fair to say he did all the heavy lifting to end this period of turmoil, as he had the fortune of reigning after Aurelian and Probus had physically reunited the empire. But Diocletian did play a decent role. He created a stable, divided government with an attempt at a balance of power, establishing a tetrarchy in which there'd be two more powerful emperors and two lower emperors who would come to replace the upper two every few years and created various lower-level offices to oversee local Roman politics. He secured the borders and led the Roman armies in victory against the empire's enemies, including the Persians and the northern barbarians. It's true he expanded the size of the Roman bureaucracy and restylized the imperial throne as something divine, officially ending the role of the emperor as the first citizen and replacing it with the age of the absolute ruler, which would come to dominate Europe until the 1800s. But in the same breath, Diocletian was also the first emperor to ever peacefully step down from the job, choosing to retire to a quiet life as a cabbage farmer. I'm serious. History can be weirder than fiction, if you couldn't tell from this list so far. But with the pros that came from helping wean the empire into a more stable age, securing borders, fighting Rome's enemies, and standing for a peaceful transition of imperial power, came a whole lot of cons. Hey, Diocletian basically reformed the entire Roman government, so it's not too crazy that he didn't get everything right. His economic policies certainly left a lot to be desired. Diocletian's government was so controlling that there was an attempt made to establish price controls 
which any economist could tell you was the first step into making sure your businesses start to fail. Fortunately, the edict was so unpopular it was ignored on day one. Diocletian also ordered Roman citizens to remain in their jobs so that there would never be too many or too few in a certain profession, basically neutralizing social mobility. This meant that if you were a blacksmith when Diocletian took power, then you'd have to be a blacksmith for the rest of your life, your children would have to be blacksmiths, and their children, and so on. Not only is that the antithesis of a healthy economy, but replace the word blacksmith with peasant farmer, and you start to see the beginnings of feudalism in Diocletian's bizarre economic restructuring. And then there's the biggest skeleton in the closet, Diocletian's ruthless persecution of Christians. Now, historically, there's no record that Diocletian personally held anything against the Christian people. Many scholars believe it was his passionately anti-Christian co-emperor Galerius who was the one who egged on the persecutions. There's some truth to this, but there's also probably a little more than coincidence that Diocletian was in the process of trying to make the Roman emperor seem almost godlike in his power to the Roman people, and all those Christians worshipping an actual god were taking that power away from the emperor. So I don't know, I feel like Diocletian really didn't have to be nudged too hard to start this genocide. Thousands of Christians were killed and hundreds of thousands more were beaten, forced to renounce their religion, or forced to flee from their homes. I know the common argument in defense of Diocletian was that this was a different time. Christians were an invasive threat to the imperial power. And besides, Diocletian wasn't the first Roman leader to launch a genocide or even a purge against Christians. Well, there had been ruthless campaigns against barbarians before, most famously the Gallic Wars waged by Julius Caesar. But these peoples were not Roman citizens, and they did not live in the empire. It's still not great what the Romans did to them, but at the very least, it was under the guise of war against neighbors, not randomly turning on the people it was sworn to protect. Plus, Christians in the Roman Empire were treated with ambivalence, sometimes looked down upon but mostly allowed to live and let live by emperors spanning from Trajan to Aurelian with minor purges in between. So for Diocletian to so forcefully steer the empire in the direction of extermination was definitely his doing and his fault. But even though Diocletian led horrible purges against Rome's Christians and rewrote the rules of the economy to plant the seed for the unfortunate serf class to begin to grow, not to mention skeptics of absolute rulers will look at him very suspiciously, his ability to reorganize and, in essence, save the Roman Empire from the clutches of history and buy it another 150 years of progress with his successful government restructuring deserves to be commended. His dedication to transition to power was also highly celebratory. Warts and all, Diocletian is the seventh best emperor Rome ever had. The sixth best emperor Rome ever had was Hadrian, who reigned from 117 AD to 138 AD. Now, like all other emperors on this list, Hadrian was a man who had his flaws. For starters, one of the first actions he committed upon taking power was slaughtering senators who might have opposed him. The Senate never forgave him, though it's worth noting that the Senate had basically no power by this point, it was just a status symbol. And through his reign, Hadrian would kill more, purging potential threats to his power. And if you think Vespasian and Titus were disliked by the Jewish people, Hadrian was basically a demon from hell. Under his reign, the Romans attempted to build a temple to their god Jupiter on the ancient Temple Mount. And when the Jews fought back against this, the Romans waged the Third Roman-Jewish War, a devastating affair in Jewish history that led to somewhere between 100,000 and 580,000 Jewish casualties, official state-sponsored persecution of the Jewish people, and the expulsion of the survivors from their homeland. An even nominally independent Jewish homeland would cease to exist by the end of 136 AD, and would not return to the world stage until 1947 with the culmination of the Zionist movement. So if you really want to blame the Israel-Palestine conflict on somebody, you can blame Hadrian. But I kid, and that's also just a surface level explanation. The point is, 
Hadrian waged a pretty destructive war against the Jewish people and may have participated in some minor purges. So the upper class and at least one ethnic group had a reason to dislike him, but the military was also not the biggest fan of Hadrian's due to his shirking of territorial expansion. See, right before Hadrian was the reign of the Emperor Trajan, who led the Roman Empire to glory by waging wars against and annexing many valuable neighboring territories, providing the lifelong Roman enemy, the Persian Empire, with probably their most devastating series of defeats in all the years of their rivalry, nearly wiping the empire off the map. But when Trajan's cousin Hadrian took power after the former's death, he immediately cut ties with a lot of these territorial advancements, abandoning some key territories. He gave up on conquering the island of Britain, building the famed Hadrian's Wall through the island to mark the new border, and abandoned almost all of Trajan's recently won territory in the Middle East, forever crushing the dreams of the Romans who longed for their empire to stretch all the way to India. Okay, so a lot of people weren't keen on Hadrian. What's he doing at number six on this list? Well, it's worth noting that though he did partake in purges, they weren't anywhere near as bad as other emperors, and are comparable to Claudius's in that they probably were necessary since many senators did not like him and likely would have killed him if they had the chance. As for his abandonment of territories, well, it was actually strategic abandonment. Hadrian didn't concern himself with expansionism and wanted instead to organize and strengthen the territory Rome already had. He visited every Roman province and hired hundreds of administrators to help develop and oversee all of these territories. He diligently watched over each province to make sure everything was up to snuff and the empire prospered as a result. Hadrian's personality was a bit of a mixed bag. He was an intense scholar of ancient philosophy, and his fondness for Aristotle and Plato led his attempt to reestablish Athens as the cultural capital of the Roman Empire, which you can imagine the citizens of Rome itself weren't really thrilled to hear. Equal parts scholarly, studious, and naturally curious, as he was hedonistic and worldly, the mixed bag of Hadrian's personal life, perhaps represented best by his affair with a young Greek teenage boy who got full state funeral rites and divine worship after his death, was one of the more interesting ones of the Roman Empire. But put together with his relatively peaceful and prosperous reign that organized and strengthened the empire, setting the stage for his successor Antoninus Pius to simply maintain what he had built, it's actually quite good. So, aside from a messy public love life and a brutal war against the Jewish people, both of which occurred when Hadrian was older and somewhat unstable, and some shirking of imperial pride and glory by looking longingly to Greece and abandoning expansion, which were philosophical and strategic decisions respectively, it's impossible to deny that a 20-year reign of stability and relative peace is a rarity in Roman history, and Hadrian deserves to be celebrated for his role in bringing it about. He was also the first emperor to have a beard, so I guess that's pretty cool. Okay, so like I said, the 4-8 to eight spots in this list were really hard to organize, and I don't think any were as difficult as number 4 or number 5. These two show we're really reaching the upper echelon of Roman emperors, and nobody shows that better than number 5, Marcus Aurelius, who reigned from 161 AD to 180 AD, and who represented the last of the so-called five good emperors. Marcus Aurelius, for me, represents the best parts of Antoninus Pius and Hadrian, both of whom he knew in his lifetime, sort of his adopted father and his adopted grandfather, respectively. He had the wisdom, philosophical fascination, and the reluctant but strong military know-how of Hadrian, and the quiet but intelligent leadership of Antoninus Pius. Hadrian himself saw this, and probably would have skipped Antoninus Pius entirely and chosen the young Marcus Aurelius for his heir, but Marcus was too young for Hadrian's liking, and so instead adopted Antoninus as his heir with the promise that he would adopt Marcus as his own heir. There had been emperors interested in philosophy before Marcus Aurelius, such as Claudius and Hadrian, but Marcus Aurelius was actually a tried-and-true philosopher. He was a Stoic, a philosophy created by the ancient Greeks, 
I'm not a philosopher, but from what I have found, Stoicism seems to be the belief in the importance of wisdom and generally being a virtuous person. And Marcus Aurelius followed these principles throughout his life, which sound like pretty good principles to me. Marcus Aurelius was not as lucky as his predecessor, Antoninus Pius, to reign during a completely stable and peaceful time. Not long after he took power, the Roman Empire was challenged by wars with the Persians and attacks by the northern barbarians. And while Marcus had his hands full with that, the Antonine Plague broke out and spread across the empire like wildfire, killing his co-emperor, Lucius Verus. Oh yeah, side note, Marcus Aurelius was the first emperor to have a co-emperor. Lucius Verus reigned from 161 AD to 169 AD, nice, but from what we know about his reign, it was largely spent dealing with the Persians and partying it up. Dude was a total party animal. <laughs> Fun stuff. But Marcus Aurelius certainly had his hands full and juggled his responsibilities pretty well. As his army was wiped out by the Antonine Plague, Marcus still managed to hold the enemies of Rome at bay and actually win the empire some new land in northern Europe from his campaigns. All this while being more or less a professional Stoic philosopher, writing notes on philosophy during his spare time that would go on to inspire millions. So all around, pretty great guy. You can tell we're starting to really reach the top tier of the top tier, the upper crust of all the Roman emperors through the years. In fact, I really only have one major complaint from Marcus Aurelius, and it's a complaint I'll share with the number four spot on this list. Incompetence with his plans for succession. Succession was hugely important in the Roman world. It didn't matter how great an emperor was, if he picked a horrible heir, it would all come crashing down. The okay Tiberius picked the insane Caligula, the pretty great Claudius picked, or was conned into picking, his destructive nephew Nero, but Marcus Aurelius probably made the worst choice of all, ending the near century of prosperity, arguably 200 years of prosperity if you believe in the Pax Romana theory, with his choice for heir. The five good emperors had always adopted an heir, which wasn't quite like our own concept of adoption. An emperor wouldn't adopt a child to be a member of his family. Instead, he would adopt a young or even fully grown man who looked exceptionally promising as an emperor to succeed him. The mediocre emperor Nerva adopted the war hero Trajan, who would adopt Hadrian, who would adopt Antoninus Pius, who would adopt Marcus Aurelius and Lucius Verus, in a series of really, really great ideas that resulted in the best 80 years in Roman history. But instead of eyeing the empire's cream of the crop, like his predecessors had done, Marcus Aurelius instead chose his biological son Commodus as his heir, ruling alongside him as co-emperor for the years before his own death as a way to show him the ropes. I do have a planned sequel to this list, the top 10 worst Roman emperors, somewhere down the tube, so I won't get into too many details here, but let's just say that the decision to let Commodus be emperor was probably one of the worst decisions a Roman emperor ever made. In Marcus's defense, I'm not sure how much of Commodus's true hedonistic personality was shining through before Marcus passed away and Commodus had unlimited power, but I just feel like there must have been some warning signs. I, I doubt a flip was just switched in Commodus when Marcus croaked. Still, whatever the circumstances, I'm disappointed in Marcus Aurelius for somehow not being wise enough to see his son's true personality, and I'm sure most of the Roman people were also disappointed to have to live in fear for their lives for more than a decade. That said, I don't think this hurts Marcus Aurelius' reign too much, as his work waging wars, defending the Roman border, and keeping the Roman citizenry safe, prosperous, and happy, even the face of a devastating plague outside of his control, deserves to be celebrated. The next best emperor at number four is Constantine I, also known as Constantine the Great, who reigned as a part of Diocletian's Tetrarchy, or else battled rivals from this Tetrarchy, from 306 to 324 AD, and then reigned by himself from 324 to 337 AD. I don't think most Roman history buffs rank Constantine above Diocletian, but I have my reasoning. I just generally feel like Constantine is an emperor with many of Diocletian's strengths and few of his flaws. 
In terms of similarities, Constantine boldly defended the Roman frontier from northern barbarians and the eastern Persians, as Diocletian had done before him. He also took great strides to improve the social fabric of the empire, in an era where the glory of the Roman Empire seemed to be behind it, as Diocletian had done before him. But Constantine really stood on his own in many ways. I remarked earlier that Diocletian's economic policy was a little wonky. Well, Constantine didn't really undo a lot of this, would still get the Middle Ages after all, but he implemented currency reforms such as the reintegration of gold coins into the empire, and he reorganized the Roman military, finally abolishing the Praetorian Guard, first established during the Republic era as the personal bodyguards for senators, and later repurposed as personal bodyguards of the emperor by Augustus, the first emperor of Rome. In the three centuries since, the Praetorian Guard had grown spoiled and corrupt by all the bribes and luxuries they were afforded. There was more than one occasion where they assassinated an emperor they were sworn to protect just because they were thinking with their wallets. R.I.P. Pertinax, gone too soon. Constantine was smart enough to recognize how bad things had gotten and completely did away with the ancient institution altogether. Good riddance, I say. However, there is one trait I admire in Diocletian that Constantine lacks, and that's some degree of humility. Diocletian actually stepped down from his imperial duties, aware that another generation of leaders was needed. Constantine quickly reversed course and returned to the idea of dictator for life that had ruled Rome since Augustus. Still, this is counterbalanced by perhaps the biggest difference between Constantine and Diocletian, religious policy. Whereas Diocletian slaughtered Roman citizens due to their Christian faith, possibly out of envy of other figures of worship, possibly out of bad advice from anti-Christian peers, Constantine reversed course. Instead, supposedly inspired by a vision he had one night before a great military victory, Constantine would become the first openly Christian sympathizing emperor, becoming baptized as a Christian on his deathbed. In the centuries since, there has been some debate as to whether Constantine's love of Christianity was legitimate and based on the vision he had before a battle, or if it was a cynical power grab based on a lie he told others because he recognized the power of the church, especially in the wake of the Diocletian purges. I tend to believe it's the former, seeing as the power of the church had gone down significantly following the purges, so I don't think Constantine would have much to gain from presenting himself as a Christian. Regardless of what school of thought you find yourself, Constantine instantly became one of those most important figures in western civilization because of the religious decisions he made as emperor it was constantine who helped organize the critical first council of nicaea in 325 which would dictate the policy of the catholic and orthodox churches up to the present day and more broadly constantine encouraged a return to religious tolerance following the purges so between his economic and military achievements as well as his key decisions to abolish the praetorian guards and open the doors for christian tolerance this would lead to Constantine's deathbed baptism in 337 AD, and the latter establishment by Emperor Theodosius of Christianity as the official religion of the Roman Empire. Constantine is doubtlessly one of the empire's all-time greats. In fact, his biggest fault, aside from his hunger for power, came after his death. Like Marcus Aurelius, Constantine's secession problem was a problem he never really worked out. But unlike Marcus Aurelius, who at least had a solid heir in place who couldn't really be questioned as the rightful heir, you know, being the emperor's only son and all, Constantine decided to will control of the empire to his three sons, Constantius II, Constans, and Constantine II, as well as a handful of his nephews and cousins. I really can't understand this decision from Constantine. Surely such a wise ruler could have seen that trying to divide an emperor among like eight people wasn't going to work, especially since he himself had seen the collapse of Diocletian's tetrarchy. And for what it's worth, yes, there was immediately civil war after his death. All of Constantine's descendants went at each other. Oh, it was ugly. It is worth noting that Constantine had an elder son, Crispus, who he had been raising as his heir, but for whatever reason, historians still debate, he had had his son executed under charges of treason in 326 AD. 
As Constantine died himself about 11 years later, it's possible he hadn't really been able to get his affairs in order in time regarding his successor to Crispus. Anyway, this is a blot on the record of Constantine, but Constantine otherwise was an excellent emperor. And here we are, the top three emperors. I mentioned a little while back, these guys take it to the next level in terms of quality. In my opinion, they are the upper rung of the upper rung. At number three, we have, in my opinion, the best of the five good emperors, Trajan, who reigned from 98 AD to 117 AD. Born in a wealthy class and already accomplished as a military strategist by the time the 90s AD rolled around, he was wisely adopted by the unpopular Nerva as an heir. Probably the most worthwhile decision Nerva made during his tenure. Trajan proved to be one of the best emperors the Romans ever had in almost every category. Militarily, he was a brilliant and able commander, annexing new territory, including the gold-rich province of Dacia, and stabbed harder at the heart of the Persians than any emperor ever had and ever would again, sacking the capital city of, oh, I don't know if I'm going to pronounce this right, Tessiphon. <laughs> you could tell me, uh, Byzantine experts, if I got that one right. If he had lived longer, it's quite possible that Trajan could have vanquished the perpetual Roman enemy for good and future emperors could have solidified a huge eastern flank against the future threat of the Ottomans, who would ultimately snuff the flame of the empire in 1453 in our timeline. But that's entertaining counterfactual, so let's keep talking about actual stuff Trajan accomplished. His military conquests are perhaps the most famous part of his reign, but he was also concerned with public life in the empire. Trajan delegated leadership of provinces to their governors, and more often than not, when they reached out to him to come and lay down the law or fix some problem, Trajan would reply that the governor ought to know his province better than the emperor did. This was not some control freak dictator with an eye looking over all the Roman Empire, but rather a wise man who realized he could not be everywhere at every single second and thus must encourage some degree of self-reliance from his underlings. And while the governors gained a greater sense of autonomy in their provinces, Trajan watched over his own turf, the city of Rome itself, and made sure everything was up to code. He made massive public works projects and brought the city into the new century, dramatically increasing quality of life for the average Roman. Though not a Christian himself, Trajan implemented what would basically be the most of the Roman state policy on Christianity until the reign of Diocletian, with some minor periods of mild purges and mild tolerance in between. This policy was that Christians should be prosecuted for failing to adhere to the state-managed polytheistic religion and emperor worship, but not actively sought out for these charges. If a Christian made a big stink over refusing to pray to Jupiter, that would be an issue. But Roman officials would not be going around bursting open the doors of Christians while they prayed in their own homes. This led to tolerance, and in fact, Christians were so grateful for this relatively mild treatment that some future church leaders prayed for Trajan's salvation and treated him as a virtuous pagan or even a saint. The Christian writer Dante Alighieri put Trajan in his version of heaven in the Divine Comedy for this very reason. As for the Jewish people, they weren't as fond of Trajan due to his exploits in Judea during one of his several conquests, but he was definitely no Hadrian. <laughs> so aside from some mildly imperialist policy, Trajan was truly one of the best emperors with massive military accomplishments, smart division of power, generous public works programs, and general religious tolerance. He was so great that after his death, every time the Senate proceeded with the official swearing in of an emperor, they would deliver a Latin phrase that translates to, May you be luckier than Augustus and better than Trajan. Let that sink in. Trajan was so incredible that every emperor after him was told point blank, try your best to be better than Trajan, as though it was a goal to work towards. Who could beat that? Well, in my eyes, two emperors. Though I will note that the top three emperors on this list are pretty close. Number two, the second best emperor in Roman history is Aurelian, who reigned from 270 AD to 275 AD. 
Roman history buffs probably won't be too surprised to hear that. But for the average Joe, this may come as a surprise. Wait, what? You think some guy who only ruled for five years is the second best Roman emperor of all time? Well, strap yourselves in, because to talk about all the great stuff Aurelian did in his life, we're going to have to go chronologically. Aurelian took power following the deaths of Claudius Gothicus and his brother Quintilus, both of whom reigned following the assassination of poor old Gallienus. You'll recall that Gallienus reigned during a time period where the Roman Empire was split into three parts. The Roman Empire in the middle, and the breakaway states of the Palmyrian Empire in the east, and the Gallic Empire in the west. Despite the best work of Gallienus, Claudius Gothicus, and Quintilus, little progress was made in gaining back this land for the empire. Indeed, if this carried on, the glory of the Roman Empire could have been completely ended with the reign of Gallienus, and historians would have to start talking about multiple Roman empires for the first time. But Aurelian took power and immediately turned the tide. He came from humble origins, but he'd trained in the Roman military for years. Like his predecessors, he was faced with invading barbarians practically on day one. His armies made quick work of them, stabilizing the Roman frontier enough for Aurelian to start looking outward towards the breakaway states. He led Roman armies east and eviscerated the Palmyrian resistance. However, despite having a less than fun and bouncy personality, shall we say, Aurelian became aware that he was trying to reunite an empire, not brutally defeat an enemy or harshly punish traitors. Some say this thinking came from a vision he had of one of his favorite philosophers, Apollonius of Tyana. (laughs) That's That's how you say that who advised Aurelian to be merciful in a dream. Whatever the reason, every time the Romans conquered a Palmyrian province or town, Aurelian ordered the people of that province or town to be treated with mercy. This had the intended effect, and by the time the Roman army reached the city of Palmyra, most of the citizens of the breakaway empire were practically rooting for Aurelian. Aurelian liberated Palmyra not once, but twice. The second time, when many of the people Aurelian had spared, conspired against him and tried to reinstate the breakaway empire. Aurelian gave the citizens of the city a third chance, but burnt the city itself to the ground as a final warning. Then Aurelian headed west. He regained the western territory, mostly through diplomatic means, making a deal with the Gallic emperor Tetricus that he would be shown mercy, even be made a senator, purely a status symbol by this point, in exchange for throwing a key battle to Aurelian's forces. This seems to be what played out. So through an intelligent combination of might and mercy, Aurelian not only completely restored the Roman Empire to its former glory, but also continuously beat back the barbarians who sensed the weakness and instability of the empire for the previous 20 years. That alone is a cause for celebration and would give Aurelian a spot on any shortlist of the empire's greatest leaders. But when the overwhelming duty of reestablishing an entire freaking empire wasn't on his plate, he busied himself with making the empire as safe and stable as possible. He abandoned the province of Dacia, which had been conquered by Trajan and celebrated as a wonderful source of gold and glory. But the gold mines had dried up, and now the province stuck out awkwardly, an uneven border that made Dacia a popular source of barbarian attacks. So Aurelian let the citizens know it would be abandoned ahead of time, so that they could have time to get their affairs in order and leave if they still wanted to be a part of the Roman Empire. And he let the barbarians know that Dacia was theirs for the taking, as long as they waited for the Roman citizenry to leave. It was an arrangement the barbarians were happy to oblige by. And though some see the abandonment of Dacia as a blemish on Aurelian's reign, a sign of weakness and a foreshadowing of all the territory Rome would have to abandon starting about 150 years later, I generally don't have an issue, as it was a strategic loss necessary for Aurelian to secure the gigantic Roman border. He also oversaw the construction of the Aurelian walls around the city of Rome itself. It was a scary time in Europe, and Aurelian recognized that. Should barbarians breach Italy, Rome itself would have been undefended if he didn't do something. So massive, sturdy walls were constructed around the city, to be started by Aurelian and finished by Probus. 
and Aurelian somehow find the time to prosecute corruption and restore food production and building construction in the Empire. Plus, none of this is even mentioning Aurelian's continuation of Trajan's Christian policy, even stepping in to help one or two church disputes, and his transitioning of the Empire to monotheism, a major turning point in the history of the Western civilization. I'm struggling to find anything bad to say about Aurelian, but there is something awful that happened during his reign. It's untimely end. While gearing up for a campaign against the Persians, perhaps trying to do what even Trajan could not, Aurelian was assassinated by some corrupt office holders who were worried they were going to be punished by Aurelian for their corruption. The Restorer of the World, as he was officially titled by a grateful Roman Senate, was killed by corrupt cowards. I don't even have to do a summation detailing how great Aurelian was, because he was great, plain and simple. I put him above Trajan because, whereas Trajan was tasked with bringing more glory to an already glorious empire, Aurelian had the much harder task of restoring glory to a pathetic and pitiful husk, which he somehow managed to accomplish in four years. Also, and I know we're going way long, it's probably close to my longest solo episode by this point, but I must point out a fun fact I learned while doing research for this episode. During his war in the Gallic provinces, Aurelian rebuilt the destroyed city of Cenobom and renamed it Aurelianum after himself. Over the years, this name evolved from Aurelianum to Orleans. And when the French conquered parts of North America and established a port city, they named it New Orleans. So, yeah, Orleans named after Aurelian. Kind of crazy how language evolves after 1,500 years or so, huh? Nine emperors have come and gone. Well, okay, technically ten. We had... Uh, Antoninus Pius and Gallienus, Claudius, Vespasian, Diocletian, Hadrian, Marcus Aurelius, Constantine, Trajan, and Aurelian. As a lot of you guys know, if you've watched my top 10 lists before, I have a nasty habit of picking really obvious top spots. The best cartoon of the 90s? Spongebob, of course. The best Broadway musical? Les Miserables, one of the most famous musicals of all time. And what's my number one pick for the best emperor of the Roman Empire? The first one. Augustus, known as Octavian, reigned from 27 BC to 14 AD. He was born to wealth and privilege, but he had been sickly his whole life, and his military training was often interrupted by periods of bed rest. But when he was trained, he studied under the general Julius Caesar. Yes, that Julius Caesar. When Caesar was assassinated after conspiring to take over all of Rome from the Senate, he adopted Augustus in his will, setting him up as his heir. This put Augustus in direct conflict with Mark Antony, a young soldier who'd been close with Caesar, and though the two teamed up to advance the cause of an imperial Rome, they butted heads when it came time to decide who should be the first true emperor of Rome. Mark Antony ended up fleeing east to hide out with his lover, the Egyptian queen Cleopatra, who had also been a lover of Julius Caesar, if that makes any sense. Augustus launched an army to meet him, and in no time at all, Augustus defeated Mark Antony and established himself as the rightful heir to Caesar and the official emperor of Rome. Augustus realized that he had to pretty much build an entirely new type of government from the ground up and got to work. This is a major reason why I consider him my favorite emperor, the same reason why I consider George Washington my favorite American president. You just have to hand it to the guys who got the ball rolling, establishing precedent after precedent, and brought peace after a time of turmoil and war, just for the ability to rule in the first place. If Trajan was the emperor who really ran with expansion, Augustus deserves at least a little credit for getting the ball rolling, expanding into Eastern Europe and annexing the breadbasket of Egypt, a region that was even considered ancient by the Roman standards. Sure, he suffered defeat in Germany, the likes of which would haunt the empire's dreams of expansion further north for the rest of its existence, but still, borders exist for a reason, I guess. 
Augustus is also credited with the official organizing of the Italian peninsula into the province of Italia. So in many ways, he's responsible for Italy as we know it today. He developed the public systems of police, firefighters, and mail carriers, as well as the Praetorian Guard, which was good at the time. (laughs) And he oversaw the construction of thousands of miles worth of roads. You know the saying, all roads lead to Rome? You can probably thank Augustus for that. In addition to more public services, he also overhauled Roman architecture, paving the streets with marble, the likes of which he discovered in his campaigns in Egypt, and dedicated time to a public movement against promiscuity and in favor of chastity and virtue. Didn't do a whole lot, but it was a well-intentioned mission, I'd reckon. Augustus is often regarded as one of the most important and competent leaders in human history. He ushered in Pax Romana, the period of time stretching from the beginning of Augustus' reign in 27 BC to the end of Marcus Aurelius' reign in 180 AD, thanks again, Commodus, which is regarded as the first and at least one of the longest periods of relative peace for a country in human history. So with all these positives, it's really hard to be the first, first citizen of Rome, Augustus. Hey, nobody else in this list has a month named after them, right? You've just listened to another episode of Geeks Crossing. Have I inspired you to learn more about Roman history? If you're already interested in Roman history, did you find my list agreeable? Did I do any of your favorite emperors dirty, or did I ignore flaws of some of your least favorites? You'll have to let me know in the Geeks Crossing Discord. Link is in the description of this episode, as always. And be sure to follow us on Instagram, at Geeks Crossing, and continue to support us wherever you're listening to us right now. Whether it be on Spotify, iTunes, Apple, or Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Audible, or Amazon Music, or whatever you're listening to us on. All major podcasting platforms uh, be sure to let your friends and family know about us especially any roman history geeks you know in your life <laughs> and if you really want to get back to the more traditionally geeky geeks you know video games instead of ancient roman history <laughs> but we got you covered with all of our twitch streamers so go check out keith at nuclear bacons on twitch nick at cryptolock gamings on twitch and eric at eman the legendary on twitch as well as our favorite fifth member, Tyler, at Carrotbite Gaming. I'm hoping he's still around. I haven't heard him in a while. I'm hoping his mic is just still on the fritz and that he hasn't been assassinated by the Praetorian Guard. <laughs> anyway, I'm Matt and Veni Vidi Vici.